Today's episode of This Week on Broadway is being brought to you by Raycon Earbuds. Met a girl crazy for me. Met a boy cute as can be. Summer day drifting away to all the summer nights. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, July 19th, 2020. I forgot day it was. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Everybody's AC on high? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's gonna be uh, gonna be a hot one as it's we. Gonna uh, be another hot day. I was just gonna start <laughs> that. <laughs> I was gonna go with too darn hot. Uh-huh, but, sure. Uh, you know, I think so. So, uh, in, in this week of of heat, uh, Peter, what did you do this week? I saw a show. What? I saw a show. Where did you see a show? Did you go to I... the Berkshires? No, 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 no. Right here in town. Right here in town. There's a marvelous, charming, and indefatigable woman named Susan Charlotte. And for the last 20 years, she has put on shows in the afternoon called Food for Thought, Ah, where uh, food is sold as well. And uh, so you can eat and see a show. Well, we didn't quite get the food this time, but we certainly got the food for thought. uh, Because what she did was put on two one-act plays and a monologue. Um, The two one-act plays were I'm Herbert from You Know I Can't Hear You When the Water's Running, about two people who've been married uh, for a while, but they were married before, and now they're so old, they're confusing the previous spouses with current spouse. So um, it was it was a terrific um, final play of the four that You Know I Can't Hear You When the Water's Running uh, had during its long run on Broadway in the late 60s. Also presented was an Arthur Miller play, which was, I can't remember anything. Uh, and uh, this is a similar type of thing. Well, anyway, what's also interesting is that um, the organization has been in business for 20 years. And 20 years ago, um, Bob Dishy and Elaine Stritch did I Can't Remember Anything. And Arthur Miller actually came to the uh, show and actually was in the audience seeing his own play, which is really wonderful. So, of course, he can't do that anymore, but the play goes on. And so did Bob Dishy. Bob Dishy was there again doing it, and he was with his wife, Judy Graubart. Now, that name may not mean much to many people, um, but those of us who grew up at a certain uh, era and watched The Electric Company... Uh, we'll mm. remember Judy Grobart yeah. as Winnie, uh, Jennifer of the Jungle, Julia Grown Up, those characters. She was in a ton of those shows. So, uh, But anyway, they've been married for um, 30-odd years, and uh, they have kids and all that. And uh, to see them do it together, the chemistry was really quite marvelous because, after all, um, they know each other so well that they were able to just jump in. These are readings, by the way. and um, But nevertheless, um, with two old pros like this, was really quite wonderful. In the second play, we had Bob Dishy again, but we had Marilyn Sokol, one of the most endearing performers in town. So it was great fun to see that. Now, there were some rules involved before you went to this 
Coffee Club, which is on the sixth floor of a building close to um, Fifth Avenue on 44th Street. So uh, uh, Susan was very adamant about the fact that everybody had to be six feet apart. They had to wear masks. Your temperature was taken at the door. A paramedic was there to make sure that everybody complied with the rules. And um, it worked out very, very nicely. Now, um, Susan is hoping that uh, on August 17th, she'll do a show uh, with Kathleen Chalfant, which was really quite wonderful. That may not happen. We'll see. Um, there's a website, www.foodforthoughtproductions.com. And um, it's worth checking into. Uh, if, if not August, um, she assures me there'll be a show in September. Not necessarily at that venue, maybe somewhere else, but um, it will happen. And, you know, it's really quite wonderful of Charlotte um, because 20 years ago, she she really felt that the one-act play was terribly neglected and she wanted to do something about that. And in fact, they're even wa working on a documentary film about one-act plays and food for thought. So I think that's really quite wonderful. And... Um, it was just great to be in an audience with live uh, actors and uh, people around you. We were six feet apart. We were on very comfortable chairs. I mean, they weren't theater seats, uh, but uh, we did have a very good time. And uh, I'm certainly looking forward to future endeavors. I'd been to Food for Thought before, and I will be again. Nice. I, 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 I'm, that's the first thing that you've seen since March, right? Oh, yeah. In, in Since person, March 11th, yeah. yeah. Well, Peter, you, uh, you said you'd be there for the first one, whatever it was. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is, uh, Wow. So that is great. And I have a link to uh, Food for Thought Productions and uh, all the information there. Wow, this is really, really, really good. Um, I'm seeing glimmers of hope here uh, through the heat. So, um, Michael, you saw something... Uh, uh, this week, but not in person. You saw Ode to Passion. So tell us about this uh, film. Yeah, Ode to Passion is a new film by Jack Danini, who directed it and wrote it, including the music and the lyrics. It's a musical, but also the, um, the gimmick, if you will, is that all of the dialogue is in rhyming verse, uh, even though it's a contemporary story. And I actually had seen a screening of an early version of it um, a couple of years ago. Uh, and it was to have had a, some kind of a theatrical premiere, uh, you know, a few months ago, but that was scuttled by COVID. So now um, it has been released through Amazon Prime. And uh, I think that even though it's um, uh, it's an imperfect movie, I think a lot of our readers, uh, listeners might be really interested in it. It stars uh, Giuseppe Bausilio, who I've known since he was 15. I actually first um, met him and interviewed him when he played Melchior in an off-Broadway production of the play version mm -hmm. of spring awakening mm -hmm. and then he went on to um he had already played the title role in billy elliott on broadway and elsewhere uh on broadway towards the very end of the run and then he went on to um uh cats and newsies and aladdin and hello dolly and he was in hamilton uh 
and it's still technically in Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, when, when hopefully we'll see it again. Uh, so he's just been doing amazingly, and he's only 23, and he's been in six Broadway shows. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, and then um, uh, his leading lady is a uh, is a wonderfully talented and beautiful young woman named Julia Nightingale, who was in The Ferryman. Uh, as a replacement. And I, um, as I say, I know uh, Giuseppe uh, pretty well for several years. And I also have come to know the filmmaker Jack Danini while, uh, you know, since uh, this project kind of began to take shape and and began to be premiered. So I don't really feel comfortable in reviewing the movie myself, but I thought I would read um, this review, uh, the f- first few paragraphs of this review from v- Variety uh, by Peter De, B- De Bruges, who, and I think this is one of those reviews that is really well written because it um, it uh, makes clear uh, the reviewer's reservations with the movie, but still makes you really want to see it. <laughs> um, so what he writes is, um, at the risk of overgeneralizing, why is it that cheapy musicals are so much more charming to watch on screen than when uh, than they are when some friend invites you to whatever way off Broadway show they've managed to get mixed up in. Heck, these tiny film projects are often more endearing than the relatively big budget ones that Hollywood studios produce. I'll take Colma over Cats any day and would watch once 10 times before sitting through Into the Woods again. Uh, big and bombastic works great on stage, but tends to look garish and awkward on screen, whereas scrappy tuners somehow feel more sincere when the camera can go in for a close-up, a la Hedwig and the Angry Inch and Hello Again. That strategy of letting the actors' faces sell the emotion behind frequently corny lyrics saves the day in Jack Danini's Ode to Passion, a micro-budget contemporary rock musical conceived for the screen that could only work in that context. Not as a concert the songs aren't good enough, and not on stage the books as thin as they come, but as an indie movie available via Amazon Prime, the project turns the earnestness of all involved into an asset. Plus, it's written in rhyming verse, which, more than a gimmick, suits its old-fashioned faux-chivalrous sense of romance. Uh, allegedly 20 years in the making, Ode to Passion is simultaneously a celebration of love at first sight and a more jaded look at the way relationships play out. It's not as ingenious as Jason Robert Brown's The Last Five Years, which sets its core couple moving in opposite directions, but Ode is ultimately deeper and wiser than its instant infatuation opening suggests. A great deal of that grounding can be chalked up to life experience, although writer director Danini also introduces an element of Christianity that will turn off some. Hmm. That dimension struck me as rather refreshing, considering that the majority of Americans identify as believers, but so few movies acknowledge the role that faith plays in people's lives. This romance ends at the altar, but not at all as I expected. As for openings, Danini couldn't be bothered to cook up a meat cute. Instead, Michael Giuseppe Bausilio spies Anna, Julia Nightingale, from across the room at a New York party, and after bombarding her with questions over the course of the night, concludes 
she will be my wife. <laughs> what Michael, who's smitten by Anna's beauty, doesn't realize is that she has daddy issues, a drug problem, and it would seem a weakness for the kind of codependency he's selling. The movie doesn't psych psychoanalyze, though it's fair to conclude that Anna's looking for someone to give her the attention her father withheld. And lest we let him off easy, Michael's a patriarchal Cro-Magnon who wants to save her, code for transforming Anna into the kind of trophy ideal he mistook her for at the outset. Ode to Passion presents this dynamic far more simplistically. She has addiction issues and his concern alone won't cut it. Or as best friends John Jeff Smith and Richie Marcus Harmon put it, the girl gets around if you get my drift. So uh, the review goes on, and I think that gives you a really pretty good idea of uh, the feel of the movie. Uh, but it's absolutely worth seeing uh, because it's so creative and uh, the performances are extraordinary. Uh, and technically, it's to me, it's astounding for such, especially for such a low-budget movie. The, the camel work, the sound quality, um, I would say that 95% of the time it really seems like the actors are singing live rather than lip syncing. And that always makes a huge difference to me in terms of the effectiveness of the movie. Um, so really, uh, really wonderful, wonderful, amazing showcase for Giuseppe and Julia, um, and also for several of the other actors, including uh, the Jeff Smith, who I'm not that familiar with, but I know he uh, was in the tour of West Side Story. Uh, and a few other things that our listeners might have seen him in. Um, so that's Out of Passion. And I would say definitely, uh, you know, uh, if you have Amazon Prime already, um, definitely uh, you might want to at least check out a little bit and see if you like it. All right. So uh, I have a link to the trailer and the, uh, and the variety of review that Michael mentioned also in the show notes. And Michael, you also saw the 5th of July on YouTube. Yeah, I, I mean, I, this is a, another example of one of those things that I, I guess in retrospect, I remembered that it had been on television uh, and I'd completely forgotten until somehow uh, someone, I think, provided a link to it. This is a 1982 television film of 5th of July by Lanford Wilson with um, much of the Broadway cast uh, the major exception being, uh, well, well, much of the original Broadway cast, the major exception being that Richard Thomas is in for Christopher Reeve. Uh, I did not see Christopher Reeve. I think we discussed this recently, and Peter mm -hmm. said he yeah. did, uh, but I did not. I saw Richard Thomas, and I thought he was really excellent in it. So it's wonderful to have his performance preserved. And then a lot, uh, most of the other people are in place, Jeff Daniels, uh, Jonathan Hogan, Susie Kurtz, um, but also there are two uh, two other new actors, and those are um, really fun to see, especially now uh, looking back in retrospect, because Helen Stenborg uh, plays Sally Friedman, uh, and uh, the role of young Shirley Talley. Uh, which I believe was Amy Wright on Broadway, is played by, guess who, Cynthia Nixon. Mm -hmm. I had completely forgotten that because at the time I probably had no idea who she was. 
Uh, so it was really great to see this. And I would say it's very well done overall. It, uh, it's a kind of a play that um, maybe uh, could have been adapted a little bit more in terms of uh, editing because uh, it's, it's wonderful as a play, but for a screenplay, maybe it's a, a little little talkier than it needs to be, but not to the point where it's a big flaw. And the camera work, again, it's on film, not videotape, so that's a wonderful thing. Uh, it was, um, since it was made for TV in the early 80s, it's not widescreen, it's, a, it's the square format that was standard for television at the time. But other than that, it looks wonderful. And I would, I, it seems to me that this version on YouTube is high def or pretty close to it. It's really very, very good quality. And it gave me a renewed appreciation for that play, um, which we discussed recently in another context. Uh, we had mentioned how wonderful it is that this one of the central relationships is between two gay men, and yet the play is not primarily about that. Uh, and, and it's also very interesting in its discussion of um, the Vietnam situation and the Vietnam protests uh, in, a, in a somewhat oblique way. Uh, there are a few places where they discuss it directly, but it's not, again, not the primary point of the play. So Wilson was very good at that, I think, in, um, in covering subjects uh, and making them all seem part of a whole and very organic to the play that he wrote. Uh, he really was, was a wonderful wonderful writer and it's nice to have this preserved in such a in such an authentic way and uh, directed by the way by the original director Marshall W. Mason in collaboration with Kirk Browning the TV director um, so definitely check it out I, we, we will have the link in the show notes and it's uh, I, it was such a nice surprise for me to see it because I had basically forgotten that it existed hmm all right. As Michael mentioned, there's a link to that in the show notes, and you can uh, check out that as well. Uh, Peter and Michael both got to see Kay Ballard. The show goes on. So, uh, Peter, tell us about uh, this Kay Ballard documentary. I was pretty impressed. Um, it really went into such detail, uh, even involving uh, her failures, um, including Molly, where she played Molly Goldberg, which I, a show I did see in Boston during the trial, which was really quite messy. And she'd be the first one to tell you mm -hmm. uh, that that was the case and often did. In fact, even made um, a recording that lasts about 15 minutes talking about the um, difficulties that uh, she had with Molly. That's only touched upon the show. But um, it, it really is amazing uh, to see how much this woman could do. That's what really impressed me, that she could play instruments, she, she could play drama. Um, and it, it, she was very gracious, too, because she had this dream uh, in the 50s of playing Fanny Bryce. And uh, she approached uh, Ray Stark, who was interested in doing um, something with his mother-in-law, but he didn't know what, maybe a movie, he wasn't quite sure, and, and he just wasn't interested. But of course, as we all know, he became interested later. And Kay Ballard yeah. was very gracious in saying that um, once she saw Barbara Streisand uh, perform, this is before Funny Girl now, she said, yeah, that's Fanny Bryce. And, um, and that was really quite nice of her. Uh, I... I had heard that she was a very lovely person to deal with. I, I only met her a few times. I remember she was sitting behind me when I saw 42nd Street deep in its run when it was at the um, St. James Theater. Um, but the thing was that um, so much was there 
from clips here, there, and everywhere that you'd be amazed existed. I mean, as the Golden Apple, the uh, famous 1954 musical in which she um, introduced Lazy Afternoon, which became a cabaret standard for a long time. Um, pictures of that, film of that, uh, so much film. Um, and, you know, that's expensive to get. I don't know if you know um, how expensive yeah. it is to get those things. And you can only use um, a few seconds or minutes before it really gets outrageously costly. So the fact that they got all this together and there were some marvelous people um, on there. Liz Smith was on there. Mark Sendroff, the lawyer who represented her for a long time, uh, was on there as well. I was tremendously entertained. I felt I was watching for five minutes and suddenly it was over. I mean, I knew it was going to be because I, uh, I followed it. It was funny because at one point I thought they were just using the background music to Follies, um, um, the opening prologue, and um, that I, I had actually forgotten that she was in the marvelous Paper Mill production. In fact, I even interviewed her um, along with Phyllis Newman, Lillian Montevecchi, and Ann Miller all in one sitting. Um, <laughs> by the way, that day, I may have mentioned this along the way, all of them saying, oh, I'm so sick, I've got a cold, and I thought, mm. oh my God, these ladies are going to start missing performances. Once they heard those cheers from that audience, they never missed. Uh, all four <laughs> of them were there for every performance. But anyway, um, the movie is a tremendous success, and um, of course, some people say, well, where's Royal Flush? That was a musical that closed out of town, um, and a few others that uh, were uh, not. Uh, Ruben Ruben, another one, uh, a Marx Blitzstein musical from, um, I think, 1956, closed in Boston, I think. Anyway, um, sure. There's only so much you can do, and perhaps they couldn't get anything on those. But, um, but nevertheless, it was uh, an impressive, impressive array of film, stills, and uh, Kay Ballard herself appeared on it. I mean, she did die last year, and I'm glad that she got to do this before um, it all ended. Ironically enough, the next day on the street, who do I run into from but Mark Sendroff, the lawyer, uh, who said, you know, she really wanted to be remembered. It was very important to yeah, her. Yeah. And uh, she will be. Hmm. So, Michael, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, the um, specifically, the, I'm sure... <laughs> Peter, I'm sure it was a wonderful surprise for you, uh, unless you had already seen it. They had some silent color footage of Carnival, the original production. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd never seen that before. I think it's quite rare. Um, and among the many other talking heads in this documentary, it's really kind of incredible how many people knew her and loved her. Uh, Carol Burnett, Carol Channing, Hal Prince, uh, who I, I guess I wasn't necessarily aware was such a big fan of hers, of Kay's, says wonderful, wonderful things about her. Jerry Stiller in uh, what must have been one of his final uh, film appearances, uh, has a lot of nice things to say and a lot of memories. Peter Marshall, Rex Reed, Mimi Hines, uh, Michael Feinstein, uh, Donna McKechnie, who was one of case co-stars in that paper mill follies that peter mentioned um rex reed and ann margaret um another another big fan and close friend apparently uh it was quite a career case started out with spike jones and his band i i uh i was happy to be reminded of that and um then uh you know her broadway credits that, that we know about and of course she did the, the tv sitcom the mothers-in-law with uh, Eve Arden, that may be 
the single thing that most people know her from. Um, but she also was uh, on Broadway in Top Banana. I'd forgotten that. And uh, um, I saw her later in her life do her one woman show called Hey Ma uh, off Broadway. And then she did some club appearances at Archie's Place and and Feinstein's at Lowe's Regency uh, before Feinstein's moved to, uh, well, to 54 Below. So she was really, I, I did notice a couple of um, mistakes or inaccuracies in the documentary. They seemed to, maybe it was just an editing error or maybe I misunderstood, but they seemed to think that Moss Hart worked with uh, Julie Andrews on Cinderella. Uh, and that wasn't true as far as I know. I, I mean, Julie was still in My Fair Lady uh, at the time that Cinderella aired. And of course, Moss Hart famously worked very closely with her on that because he directed that show. Um, but I think they said that he worked with her on Cinderella and that wasn't right. Um, and then also there was an interesting thing. They showed some photos of an off-Broadway um, roundabout production of She Stoops to Conquer in 1993, uh, which I didn't see and had forgotten that that had happened. Uh, and they showed several photos of it. And one of the uh, co-stars was clearly Nathan Lane at the start of his career. And uh, he wasn't mentioned. So I wasn't, I'm not sure if they didn't realize that that's him in the photos or if it just got lost in the shuffle. Um, but overall, I think it was very well done and pretty meticulous. And there were, as Peter mentioned, tons of clips of all sorts. A lot of her early TV work, uh, singing hilarious comedy numbers and things of that sort. So I was very happy to see it because I didn't get to um, see it when it, well, I'm not sure how it, was distributed or to what extent when it came out last year. So this was streamed online through Theater Mania, and I was very glad that they decided to do that because I enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, so if you go to kballardmovie.com, there's uh, a list of different ways that you can see it. Yeah. Uh, now that uh, it, it was originally on Theater Mania and a bunch of different um other outlets but it seems like they're they're calling this the virtual cinema uh and uh ways in which you can see this documentary that's really wonderful that not only was it captured and put together but able to be put out there right now it's it's really uh it's it's so important to understand the the roots of these these great people that we all stand upon their shoulders uh and Kay Ballard is just just one of the many. So let's move on to our trivia for this week. Uh, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's question? Sure. Uh, the question was, what musical quoted the lyrics of the entire second stanza of the Star Spangled Banner in its second act? And the answer is over here, the 1974 musical about World War II entertainers. The two Andrews sisters were looking for a third singer and found one in Mitzi, who actually was a Nazi spy. Eventually, she was suspected as such, and she was challenged to prove that she was a genuine loyal American by reciting the entire second stanza of the Star Spangled Banner, which she started, but she didn't get very far. The person accusing her had all the ammunition he needed. Hmm. No real American knows the second stanza <laughs> of the Star Spangled Banner. Now, the irony is, um, after that was revealed, 
a character did come in and say, um, you know, actually, I know the third stanza of the uh, Star Spangled Banner. And the point that of her saying it was to really indicate, you know, we were in a war, This and, and this, of course, banner, um, Star Spangled Banner did come up during the War of 1812. And it was a very moving moment. And the irony was that was said in the original production by Phyllis Somerville, who died this week. Uh, so um, so even though um, I didn't know that was coming, there was um, a strange propinquity there. And um, anyway, um, Phyllis lived a nice long life and she was really terrific. Also in uh, the straight play, the off-Broadway play, The Some of Us, about... Um, a gay young man and uh, his father who totally is at home with um, this, but he meets a woman who isn't and that Phyllis played her and, um, and she got all the juice out of it. Steve Bell was the first to get it, followed by Joanna Abizi. Tony Janicki slumping to third place again. Uh, Brigadoo, Jack Leshner and Paul Witte. This week's question. Before you get to this week's question. Oh, um, I have to throw in here. Did you know that there are four verses to the Star Spangled Banner? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I didn't know there were four verses until one Lena Hall sang them really? at a baseball game for the uh, My God Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. <laughs> the wow, Lehigh that's the Valley name of the team. That's the, the name Iron of the Pig? the Iron Pigs. Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. Lena sang the Star Spangled Banner back in uh, 2013 for them, and the fans were standing, and they thought that uh, the Star Spangled Banner was over after the first verse, and it went on and on and on. And there's a wonderful video from Sports Illustrated. Uh, <laughs> that outlines this and the angst on the uh, people in the stands' faces is, is really wonderful. I'll throw that in the show notes, but yeah. The uh, Iron Pigs, you know, it's funny. Back in 1990-something, I wrote a, a – I compiled. I didn't write. I compiled sure. the list of um, – all the uh, minor league and major league and Negro league and um, women's league baseball teams was published by facts on files. It's called professional baseball franchises um, from the Abbeville athletics to the Zanesville Indians. <laughs> Wouldn't you know, three weeks before uh, the book is due, I find out that um, there's the Zanesville pirates, but anyway, um, you know, the, the, everything was printed um, for the cover. So they went with that. But anyway, my point is some of the baseball teams really had hilarious names hmm. um, in Darby, Connecticut. There were the Darby lushes. I guess they were drunks. And the irony is they ch had changed their name from the year before when they were the Darby Angels. So I guess they were no angels. There was a team in 1912 called the Swastikas. Nobody knew. Ooh. You know, I mean, you know, yeah. nobody knew. Um, uh, um, but I love the fact that so many um, teams took the names from what their uh, town or city's occupation most was, um, like the Flint, Michigan, vehicles. Um the um, high toppers for some North Carolina team, um, uh, the furniture makers um, was for a North Carolina team. That, but my favorite was the Sheboygan Chairs. It was a team <laughs> called the Chairs because they made chairs in the town. Can you imagine the Chairs? I mean, that's a team with no get up and go. So anyway, uh, it really was an amazing experience to do this book. But the Iron Pigs, good Lord. So... Um, the, the Iron uh, Pigs is a reference to pig iron, which is used in the manufacturing of oh, steel, yeah. for uh, which uh, Lehigh Valley region yeah. of Pennsylvania is world-renowned. 
And I, I knew that as soon as I mentioned this, Rob Johnston would jump in. And uh, of course, Rob was uh, Rob was right on the money with uh, the Lena Hall reference as well, and all the uh, they were a Philadelphia Phillies minor league team. Uh huh. They uh-huh. are. They're not. You working. know, in fact, um, so I'm a little surprised they're not the Phillies because I've noticed that baseball teams now in the minors tend to take the name of, name of the uh, parent team. And uh, I'm glad that started happening after I wrote the book because, I mean, so many teams change allegiances, you know. So it's not impossible for a team to be with the Detroit Tigers and be the um, York Tigers and the next year become the York Cubs and the year after that becoming the York Brewers. Um, that type of thing happens all the time now. So um, as a way of um, letting people know who the parent team is and it, sort of a greatness by association thing. Anyway, that's probably a lot more about baseball than uh, <laughs> many of our listeners would care to know. So I like question, baseball. That's sure. what I'm doing here. <laughs> I understand. I get the reference. Um, <laughs> so um, the question for this week, what was the first song in a Broadway musical to actually use in its lyric the expression rock and roll? Okay. So if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. Whatever you are doing, whether you're working from home, Zooming with friends, or getting some exercise, you need a great pair of wireless earbuds. Before you go dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market, and they sound just as amazing as the other top audio brands you know. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are the best ones yet, with six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, much more bass, and more. Raycon's wireless earbuds are so comfortable, they're perfect for conference calls or binging podcasts. I have earbuds in all day long as I'm listening to podcasts or to music or on a call. Wireless earbuds have changed my life, and I'm not just being dramatic, they really have. I've been using my Raycons for about a month now, and the number one thing I like best is the battery life. Before Raycon, I was constantly concerned about my earbuds' battery. Not anymore. One other thing, Raycon earbuds come with multiple gel tips because we all have different sized ears. Unlike some of your other wireless options, Raycon earbuds are both stylish and discreet with no dangling wires or stems to distract anyone during video calls. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash broadwayradio. That's buyraycon.com slash broadwayradio for 15% off Raycon's wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash Broadway Radio. And when you go to make your purchase, use Broadway 15 for 15% off. We'd like to thank Raycon for supporting Broadway Radio. So, our topic this week is summer reading. And as I realized just as we started to record this morning that I should have invited Jan Simpson to be with us because every year... I mean, at least for the last 10 years, if not more, Jan has put out a list of her theater books for summer reading. And I feel really bad we didn't invite Jan. So we have to invite Jan to talk about summer reading. But Peter and Michael, what are some books that are things that you think we should pick up and turn the page? Well, you know, I'm going to mention The Season by William Goldman, because I've spoken about that so many times. So I'm not going to speak about it today. Um, But 
I'm going to mention a very obscure book by a woman named Kate Dunn called Exit Through the Fireplace. And um, the reason it's called that is because uh, this is about the days of stock in England, in the provinces, not in London necessarily, but in the provinces where they used to do rep and they used to do a, arguably a different show every week. And as a result, um, a lot of them were under rehearsed or people had to come in at the last minute and do things. And um, <laughs> one act, so many of them were, were set in um, living rooms of uh, or drawing rooms of nice uh, upper middle class homes. And one actor uh, said, I know when uh, somebody doesn't make an entrance, what I always do is go upstage to the French doors, open them wide and take a breath as if I'm taking a breath of fresh air and then come back. And by that time, the person has come in, you know, and uh, but it's all about the misadventures that go on. And um, it's it's great fun. And as my wonderful friend, Ken Bloom, who has written many a wonderful book, including the 101 Great Broadway Musicals book, um, the picture book that has had many editions now and some shows have come and gone. Um, as he says, you really will find yourself laughing on one page and in tears on the next page because so many of the stories are very moving too. So I know that's not a famous book, but I do think it's worth mentioning. Okay. Uh, Michael, what have you got to uh, suggest? Well, I can start out with two books that I can use as a sort of a segue. And one of them is, <laughs> the title is How I Lost 10 Pounds in 53 Years <laughs> by Kay Ballard right? <laughs> uh, with Jim Hesselman um, and a foreword by the aforementioned Jerry Stiller. They, they must have been really good friends, those two. Uh, and it's a wonderful book that, that Kay wrote with this Jim Hesselman uh, quite a few years ago and uh, to uh, I, I have not restarted it after seeing the documentary but that's definitely high on my list and then another book that I'm that I have started rereading is a great book called Intimate Nights the Golden Age of New York Cabaret by James Gavin uh, and that's backstage books published in uh well, actually, this is a revised version that was published in 2006. I don't um, have the original publication date here in front of me. Uh, but I remember enjoying the book so much. It's it's the kind of thing that it's a fascinating subject that's not necessarily well-researched or well-covered elsewhere in books. Uh, I mean, I'm sure nowadays you can find a lot online uh, that was very difficult to search out in the old days. But um, it's so impressive just to read through this and and uh and and imagine the the incredible research that James must have done in 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 bringing back these names of these wonderful night spots and these performers whose uh many of whose names are now pretty much lost to history i'm not lost to history but certainly not known by the general public but they were part of this thriving thriving incredible new york nightlife from the 30s um uh, sort of to the present day but in in recent uh years and decades i i guess it's um it, it's certainly not what it used to be uh but uh the people who got their start in in 
New York cabarets, are, the list is absolutely mind-boggling from, of course, Barbara Streisand, Woody Allen, uh, Joan Rivers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought I had remembered uh, when I started to reread this, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure that Kay Ballard is going to turn up here um, sooner or later. I didn't remember exactly uh, what James had written about her. Well, she's on the third page of the introduction. Mm. <laughs> That's the first time she appears. And uh, he recreates a wonderful joke uh, that she told. This is so typical, Kay Ballard. Uh, two women who haven't seen each other meet on the street. And one says to the other, um, what have you done to your hair? That looks like a wig. And the other woman says, it is a wig. And the first woman says, oh, well, you'd never know it. and then and then apparently Kay who as as um Peter mentioned was really instrumental in uh in uh uh, sort of getting the the funny girl going really in a sense just by suggesting it to Ray Stark uh but she also did a uh, as I think Peter said she did a recording of uh of Fanny Bryce material and she would sing her songs in her act. And apparently Kay had a, a parody of my man, um, the, uh, the verse of my man, which uh, the actual lyric is, it cost me a lot, but there's one thing that I got. It's my man. But Kay was, uh, this was the late fifties and already, I guess, um, uh, you know, rents uh, and uh, were starting to zoom in, in Manhattan, and and of course everything's higher than it was previously, and so everything's relative. But so she uh, sang, uh, "It cost me a lot, but this wasn't thing that I got my apartment." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know that was boy that hasn't so, dated. Uh, yeah, no, that hasn't <laughs> dated. That that one's evergreen. <laughs> mm, mm. So uh, it's, it's it's been a very Kay Ballard week for me, and uh, that just did my heart really good, and I. I was so happily surprised to see her turn up on the third page of the introduction of this wonderful book. I'll mention another Kay, and that's Kay Thompson. And Uh, Sam Irvin wrote a biography of her that is so... uh, uh, When I finished the book, I went right back to the first page and started again. And when I finished that second time, I went right back to the first page and started again. I have never had that experience with a biography, but I thought this one was so amazing because this was really a wild and crazy lady. Um, Especially... um, um, well, I mean, she she didn't lie, but I mean, um, Kay Thompson is most famous for the Eloise um, stories that were at uh, the little girl who lives in the Plaza Hotel. And um, so there was it became so popular. There was actually a song. And Kay Ballard said, you know, this was a top 40 hit. Yeah, it was number 37, but she's right. I mean, it wasn't top 40 hit, you know, but, you know, there is the the way she said there was an implication that, of course, it was uh, substantially higher on the charts. But um, her adventures on Broadway, her adventures in Hollywood, her invention um, adventures as a nightclub performer uh, with the Williams brothers, including Andy Williams, if people remember who he was, uh, was an enormous success here in New York during the Supper Club era. And in fact, it's often said that Angela Lansbury's opening number in Anyone Can Whistle 
me and my town where the four boys come in and back her up uh, was mm. actually inspired by Kay Thompson's act. But it's a phenomenal biography. And, you know, I always admire people who do biographies because that has to be the hardest type of book to write because you have to go everywhere and find out all this information. And what if you miss something? And I, I would think you would have to because nobody knows everything and nobody has all the um, information and certain things fall through the cracks. I mean, I am just in awe of biographers, but especially Sam Irvin in um, the K. Uh, Thompson one. So um, I do uh, recommend that. But no discussion of uh, books uh, involving theater would be complete without mentioning Ethan Morton, who I really believe is the best of all of us writers. Um, phenomenal. And he started a series uh, dealing with the decades of the American musical theater, starting in the 20s. The 20s book was called Make Believe because of the song in Showboat. The 30s book was called Sing for Your Supper uh, because of the song in The Boys from Syracuse. The 40s book was called Beautiful Morning, Need I Explain. The 50s book was called Coming Up Roses, Need I Explain. <laughs> the 60s book was Open a New Window uh, because of the Jerry Herman song in Mame. Uh, one uh, More Kiss um, was the 70s book uh, from Follies. And um, then uh, he sort of lost interest in the Broadway musical because it wasn't the Broadway musical he knew. And uh, things had changed tremendously. So um, he wasn't enamored of that. And uh, he did have to acknowledge that... Um, the musical was still going, but um, it wasn't exactly the musical he wanted. So as a result, he didn't take um, a decade. He took 25 years, figuring that's plenty for the type of show we're dealing with. And he didn't take a song title from that era. What he did was take a song lyric from the 60s. And you won't have any trouble locating uh, what that song is because the title of the book for the um, years 1980 to 2005 uh, was The Happiest Corpse I've Ever Seen. Um, mm. And uh, frankly, um, I, I think he could have picked a song um, from the era that he was writing about. Uh, and that would be a song from A Day in Hollywood, A Night in Ukraine, um, because the opening song was called Just Go to the Movies. So anyway, um, <laughs> that might be uh, more apt for what he was feeling about it. But I'm telling you, the perceptions are so wonderful. Um, to quote a different lyric from Cabaret, um, or paraphrase, really, uh, if we want to describe Ethan Muse, uh, Morton, he's clever, he's smart, he reads music. Um, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of musical uh, discussion, too, you know, about the E flat here and the A minor here. Um, <clears throat> So I, I don't know if he smokes or drink gin like I don't, but nevertheless, he certainly is a magnificent writer. And I know a lot of people take issue with the fact that he's so opinionated. Um, I, for one, find myself nodding my head in agreement when he comes out with opinions uh, here, there, and everywhere. And I cannot recommend these books enough. Now, what's really interesting is that the book Make Believe, the first one, is by far the rarest. And my guess is, and I'm guessing, is the fewer copies were printed of it because um, uh, the publisher felt, well, there's only a limited audience for this. But why is it that the um, other books um, seem to be more readily available? And I suspect, again, I have no proof, I suspect that uh, once they saw how well Make Believe did, they've, they've printed more copies of the subsequent um, books in the series. So as a result, um, I do think that it's uh, by far worth checking out. And I know people who actually have started make believe and have just gone 
right through all of them and just had a real musical theater history uh, by going through them. And, um, and while um, you will disagree with some of his more uh, violent opinions, um, um, he actually refers to Zorba, and I quote, mm. um, as a piece of shit. Um, you know, but um, still, uh, I mean, that made me gasp in horror, but uh, and uh, uh, not because I'm so crazy about Zorba, but I mean, you know, I, I didn't expect to run into that phrase in um, a book that is really very academic in many respects, but still a great, great, great writer with smart, smart, smart perceptions. Peter, I want to point out something here that um, maybe we can help some of the listeners with. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But you mentioned uh, William uh, Goldman's The Season at the, right. at the very top of the show. Yeah. And so I, I I went to grab a link to it in the show notes um, to add to the show notes so that people can get to it pretty easily. And on Amazon, um, uh, The Season sells for $600 in hardcover and $692 in paperback. That is so bizarre to me, you know. <clears throat> and I go, so I was like, okay, so some anomalies happening on Amazon. So I went over to eBay where it's $742. Wow. That's uh, amazing to me. Do you, you mean f f first edition? No, no, just random. And oh. it's $742 you know, I, plus $4 shipping. This is why, you know, I, I don't know how many used bookstores are open, but uh, nevertheless, um, the season was originally in hardcover, of course, but there was a mass market paperback edition that was uh, put out. And uh, then and then in 1984, there was a trade paperback uh, edition, uh, a re-release of the book. And, um, you know, I uh, to many people, uh, this is a, a book that's terribly dated, of course, because they talk about the fact, wow. Theater tickets are up to $12. And one press agent says, I don't know how high tickets can go. I mean, $12. Well, we certainly learned that they could go higher. Uh, and the book is terribly um, criticized for being homophobic, though what uh, Goldman is doing is really reporting what's going on in that age, to be fair. And also, he goes to bat for Tennessee Williams uh, saying, what, what a shame that he can't really um, write about uh, what he really knows. Um, and uh, he really would like that to happen. Um, an irony is he talks about a play called Staircase, uh, where um, mm. <laughs> the, the, the actors in it and the, um, and the playwright, he said, they went to inordinate lengths in their bios to establish that they were straight. He said, I've, I've never seen so much stuff about they're married, they have children, uh, all that kind of stuff. And isn't it interesting that in the original back cover of the book is a picture of William Goldman with his wife and his two children. So, I mean, you know, as you so, but, uh, but anyway, um, that's something that one should uh, approach with caution, younger readers, because um, they grew up in an era of uh, far more understanding and they will occasionally uh, feel that um, he is homophobic. Um, I, don't think that's really true, but um, again, um, we, uh, we'll have to agree to disagree on that. So, you know, there's a guy named William Torbert Leonard. Uh, I'm not saying he's famous, but he did two labor of love books, and one was called Once Was Enough, and what he means is 
It's a, a book that details every Broadway show that ran one and only one performance, not including previews. Um, and uh, I mean, when I say a labor of love, this was done before the computer era. And you can actually see that it's done on a typewriter. This was done by a small press. Um, you know, you just submitted to them uh, what you had and uh, they printed it as is. So it, you can really tell it's a typewriter from way back when. Uh, but it is terrific. The research he did too, getting um, critics uh, reviews and uh, finding out if some were um, revamped or revived or anything like that, it's all there. And if that isn't enough of an achievement, um, he then wrote a book that dealt with less successful shows. Less successful than one performance? Yes, shows that closed out of town. And so that's called Broadway bound. And of course, that's what they were. They were Broadway bound, but they didn't get to Broadway. And they're all alphabetically arranged in both books. Um, and it's just amazing. Both of them end in the early 80s. Uh, it's too bad, of course, that um, we don't have more than that. Though, frankly, um, the one performance flop is uh, certainly a thing of the past because the way shows are budgeted now mm. is even if they get rotten reviews, they have this enormous reserve so they can run for a while and hope for the best. So, um, so we don't have them anymore. But shows still do close out of town. And, um, and I'm not talking about regional theater production. I mean, there are, there are shows that um, have full productions um, that go out of town in the, to Philly, Boston, and Baltimore um, <laughs> and, and close on the road. But, um, but anyway, it's an, uh, when you talk about labor of love, these are two books that really exemplify that in, to the nth degree. So uh, it's confusing here because I was trying to find the Once is Enough as well, and there was a play on Broadway called Once is Enough. Oh, really? In 1938, ran oh, okay. for uh, at Henry Miller's Theater. Uh -huh. Let's see, written by Frederick Lonsdale. Yes. Oh, he was a very famous playwright, yeah. So uh, produced by Gilbert Miller. Oh, he was a big deal. Uh, no, Gilbert Miller was an enormously successful producer way back when. So, Ran 105 uh, performances. Uh-huh. So once uh, wasn't enough. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, any uh, more books you want to add to the uh, discussion? Uh, Peter, parenthetically, Stephen Sondheim himself confirmed directly to me that Me and My Town was indeed inspired by Kay Thompson and uh the, those Trump. kinds of yeah, yeah 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 so that's uh that's that's pretty um authentic <laughs> that <laughs> statement uh uh and on that note three of the uh, i'm sure many books on sondheim that i would recommend and would like to reread and are on my list are sondheim and company by yeah. Craig Zayden, which for many people is the the gold standard i i guess. Um, then there's the bio of Sondheim by Meryl Seacrest, which I remember being uh, quite controversial when it came out. Uh, uh, you know, I guess that's only natural that it would be. There would be strong opinions on any book on Sondheim. I don't remember the details, but some people were not very happy with it. Um, and then there's a wonderful book called Sondheim's Broadway Musicals by Stephen Banfield which is an analysis of the shows themselves in quite uh, a lot of wonderful detail, including musical analysis, lyrical analysis. And uh, that was published uh, at a point where it goes 
up to and includes into the woods. So that means, um, obviously, passion is not in it. And I guess and there's, there's assassins, one other, yeah. uh, uh, assassins and, and one other that I can think of that's technically uh, uh, also missing uh, as a Sondheim Broadway musical that's missing. And I guess that would be The Frogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, because even though it wasn't written sure. from scratch, uh, yeah. I think that that the new material in, in that some of it is really wonderful, including that great song "I Love to Travel." I think that's one of the best things uh, Sondheim wrote in his later career, and I thought that show was worth it, if only for that number. But there are other wonderful things in it as well, and I um, thought it was so interesting how Nathan Lane uh, collaborated with mm. Sondheim as a writer mm. in addition to the star of the show. Uh, so those are three books, uh, as I say, of the many on Sondheim that I would check out if you haven't already or or maybe check out again. It's It's always so interesting to read books again after many years of... of away from them um yeah i just did that with flower drum songs plural (laughs) um david lewis's book which um deals with the original production of flower drum song as well as the film version and then the revisal that david henry wang did um comparing and contrasting and all that but and and a a terrific book and uh again very opinionated in many respects but uh, a very good book but you're mentioning stephen banfield remind me of stephen suskin who mm-hmm. is one of our most valuable mm-hmm. um, writers. And um, his book um, that deals with orchestration is um, a miracle, a miracle. Um, it, it's, it flabbergasts me on so many levels. It's called The Sound of Broadway Music. And he goes into such detail with so many shows in terms of who the orchestrator was. Now, so many orchestrators hire sub-orchestrators to do songs they're too busy to do. And he goes into that. He tells you many times that um, this one wrote these three, this one wrote these four, this one wrote these five. It's amazing. But more than that, he, he went the extra 10 yards by putting in, um, when the show's tried out, for the most part, not every show, I'll grant you, but where they tried out when they opened out of town, I mean, this is amazing. He didn't have to do this. Nobody expected that in this book. This is mm-hmm. about orchestrators, mm-hmm. but he did that. So he also many times tells you how much the orchestrators got paid, so much a page for doing things. I mean, it's an amazing book, but this is not his only amazing book. He did a book called Opening Nights on Broadway, where he simply went and looked up the reviews of virtually every show, though um, the first volume uh, went from Oklahoma to um, the end of 1964, though he does point out um, that he didn't put Bajor in and people mm-hmm. keep on saying to him, how come where's Bajor? Anyway, um, the thing is that um, he does give you uh, reviews from um, the uh, Times, the Herald Tribune, uh, the World Journal, um, um, World Telegram and Sun, uh, all those critics, um, little excerpts, not the whole thing, just things that he finds pithy and interesting. And he also tells you, in his opinion anyway, uh, how many got raves, how many got approvals, uh, mixed reviews, disapprovals, and outright pans. So um, so that first book uh, went to um, 64, and it was so successful that he did a book that went from 64 to 81. And um, he said he would have gone on, but see, the thing is, 
that um, the the newspapers really didn't think much of it when he wanted to do it. And then when they saw that he was making money from it, they wanted their part of the uh, action. So as a result, <laughs> it became prohibitively expensive. And that's why we don't have a book after more opening nights on Broadway. Um, so I'm sorry we don't have more and more opening nights on Broadway. But what we do have that's really spectacular is a book called Second Act Trouble. And what he does is, um, again, this is simply um, replications of articles that appeared here, there, and everywhere about shows that had not just second act trouble, but first act trouble too. Um, the, the crown jewel of it is the article that was in the Saturday Evening Post about Kelly, the notorious 1965 musical that Ken Mandelbaum uses to open his book, Not Since Carrie, because as he points out, Ken Mandelbaum does, that um, nobody really thought that things were um, getting as expensive as they were, that this was a show that lost an unprecedented $650,000. Now, of course, today, with musicals being in the big budgets of millions and millions and millions, any producer who lost $650,000 on a show would tell you he had a hit because, um, you know, that's not that much to lose when you're talking about 20 million. But back then, 650000 was the, the greatest loss ever for a show that ran one night on Broadway. Uh, it tried out in Boston. It closed before um, I could get to it. I had tickets for the following week. Um, and I almost threw myself in the Charles River when I found out they left town and I wasn't going to see the show. <laughs> but anyway, um, the Saturday Evening Post um, uh, uh, had a, a, a writer assigned to it. Now, Anita Gillette, who was in the show, tells me that they didn't know what he was doing. Um, they uh, just assumed he was somebody's boyfriend, I think, or something like that. <laughs> but actually, he was taking... Um, quite a number of notes. And the article, I remember telling a friend when I saw the article, um, I said, it's like 12 pages. He said, it's not 12 pages. How could any article about Kelly be 12 pages? I said, I think it's something like that. And it really was um, with a lot of pictures. There are no pictures in the um, Second Act Trouble book, but there certainly is a lot of text. And occasionally he will weigh in with an opinion here, there, and everywhere. Um, in Interspersed, uh, sometimes the opinions come, sometimes at the end of the article. But there are stories about fade out, fade in, Ilya Darling, the act, uh, the Liza Minnelli vehicle, uh, the Kander and Neb did in 1977. Uh, of course, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um, so it's, it's a magnificent magnificent book. And uh, I am just in awe of Stephen Susskind um, and what he thinks about doing and how he achieves it. I'd like to mention one other thing before we close on this, and that is the fact, for, for a very specific reason, as you'll soon see, um, Act One, Moss Hart's memoir, mm. has been often said to be a marvelous book, but it doesn't quite tell the truth. And uh, yeah, I remember Scott Whitney, uh, who was Alan J. Lerner's assistant, said, Alan always tells stories the way that they should have happened and not necessarily the way they did happen. And huh. that's, as time has gone on, it seems that Moss Hart did the same thing with Act One. But here's what I want to say about Act One. So here's Moss Hart, and he's written a play called Once uh, in a Lifetime. And Sam Harris, who was a big producer at the time, thinks it has potential. But he does think that maybe it needs some help and maybe George S. Kaufman would be the man to help it. Now, this is really an astonishing thing because Moss Hart is nobody at this point. He's had one play that's closed out of town. I mean, and so things are really tough. And why would George S. Kaufman even deign to entertain the fact of 
working with a totally unknown writer. But anyway, um, so Moss Hart is, um, knows that George S. Coffin has the script and he thinks of something that he wants to tell George S. Coffin. So he dares to call him up. And he calls him up and says, um, uh, Mr. Coffin, you don't know me, I'm Moss Hart, but Sam Harris sent you a script that I wrote. And Coffin says, yes, I'm reading it tonight. Now, let this be a lesson to all you artistic <laughs> directors out there that let things sit on your desk for years. <laughs> if George S. Kaufman, the esteemed George S. Kaufman, who had had hit after hit after hit after hit during this period of time, can read a show the night he gets it, why can't you, friends? You know, I'm, uh, uh, Kevin um, McCollum fully admits that the script for The Drowsy Chaperone sat on his desk for a year before he read it and thought it was terrific. How many scripts, producers, are sitting on your desk now that are gold mines that you don't know about because you don't have the um, wherewithal, ambition, uh, and time, I'll grant you, or just proclivity to, to read the damn things? So get on the ball, producers. If George S. Kaufman can do it, why can't you? <laughs> okay excellent uh, Michael anything else before we wrap up oh yeah I'll just uh, end by mentioning a uh, I found a paperback that I have published in 1979 that I would like to look at again and it's called it's an anthology called Gay Plays the first collection uh, published by Bard, and it's edited with an introduction by William M. Hoffman, uh, who would go on to write, of course, as is, but mm. that was several years later. Mm. Um, so that so that's one of the interesting things about it. This and also what's included is really interesting. Uh, some obvious and some very non-obvious choices. The plays in it are T-shirts by Robert Patrick, mm -hmm. Boy Meets Boy. Uh, the, musical, oh, the musical yeah yeah by bill solly and donald ward confessions of a female disorder by susan miller the madness of lady bright by lanford wilson uh entertaining mr sloan by joe orton a late snow by jane chambers the killing of sister george by frank marcus and something called cornbury by William M. Hoffman and Anthony Holland. So Anthony it, Holland, wow, he was an actor. Wow, yeah, so it can be interesting to, again, uh, read things like that in retrospect, uh, including the, the notes, you know, uh, uh, that Mr. Hoffman has about the plays and, uh, and just see what, uh, just to see what was chosen in 1979. Uh, and of course, what would, what would happen after that um, you know, with, uh, with, among other things, the, the tragedy of the AIDS crisis. So, um, that's I want to say something about, about boy meets boy. Yeah. And, um, I think that, um, every, uh, right winger who truly believes that, um, gays are out to convert everybody to be gay should see boy meets boy because there's a marvelous scene in a nightclub and two men are dancing and two women are dancing, and a man and a woman are dancing. And to me, this is the metaphor for the fact that we're looking for peaceful coexistence. Live your life the way you want to live it, for God's sakes. But it's not a case anybody's trying to convert anybody. And I thought that was so brilliant to show three different couples representing three different lifestyles, and yet everybody's happy and everybody's getting along. 
Well, and to, and to your point, uh, there's a wonderful lyric in the title song, uh, back when gentlemen were gentle. Mm. And I think I've seen that used as a tagline for the show itself. Uh, and I think that that speaks to your point of mm -hmm. what a wonderful retro kind of uh, gay musical it is. We had a question from one of our listeners. Uh, Nikki Juven asked, uh, Peter, are you writing a new book? Uh, I am working on um, a book with uh, Rob Schneider, uh, which is dealing with um, musicals that uh, influenced other musicals. Uh, for example, the chapter that I was just looking over, uh, uh, it, uh, many people are writing it and we're editing. Um, and um, But um, I was just working on the chapter of Miss Saigon, which the, the point was that uh, the casting craziness um, that went on when Jonathan Price was uh, announced to play the engineer and he wasn't an Asian actor, even though the character is Eurasian, um, that after that, um, people really realized you, you, you have to really have the right actor for the right role and the ethnicity has to be correct. And, you know, to be fair, after that happened, every person who has played the engineer has had um, a background of um, Asian, Filipino, whatever. Right. Um, and so um, that uh, that changed things. Um, and so it's about musicals that change things. And so there are 50 examples of that. And so um, we have to get it done by December 1st and we'll see what happens. <laughs> Nothing like a deadline to motivate you. You bet. All right. So before we wrap up, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayVideo.com. There's a link to subscribe. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to. You find our podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we talked about today. So, on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.